Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together and we discuss it, getting the three different perspectives from three different people. Hello everyone, hello guys. Hello. We're Hi. now in a new season a new book of the bible where we're back to it from a little bit of a break this is really exciting to mm. to be back before we sort of just jump into sort of like uh, the how we're going i'm just going to because i we're in a new book so I, we may as well just reintroduce ourselves just so that people are all on the same on the same page so my name's josh i'm the pk pastor's kid i've got with me lachlan miller our expert hello and I've got Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hello. Hi, guys. How are we all doing? Yeah, well, well. I remember talking in my interview that we recorded a few weeks ago about how we would hit February and everything would start and mm. life would get hectic. And that is exactly where I'm at. Yep. It is February. Everything in life has returned basically to normal. And uh, we're going on. Church life is all back into the swing of things yep, for you. Yeah, literally had a few weeks of youth already um, into our big main series for the beginning of the year, uh, Captivated by Christ series, preaching mm. series. Yeah, everything's off and running. Excellent. Morgan, how's how's life for you at the moment? Yeah, same as Lockie. Life is just busy, very busy. <laughs> um, I feel like the Christmas break went forever and then it just suddenly stopped and everything just sped up. <laughs> mm. But, um, yeah, uni goes back next week, work's busy, just life. That's How good. about yourself, Josh? Yeah, good. Busy yeah. life just seems to just go into to full gear because now everyone is really back into sort of their working life and either client work or other people that you're sort of talking to within the industry are now like, oh, we're back. And so now there's like, for me personally, there's more jobs coming up within the film industry, which is really nice. It was a bit slow at the start of the year, but now it's sort of picking up and we're getting full steam, which is a nice place to be. And I um, would rather be busy than not busy. Yeah, fair. Absolutely. Yeah. And as um, we've, we say always, we have the titles of, and that's really just for the sake of this this show, this podcast, but it's not the be or, or end or our opinions. We're here just to discuss, get the three different perspectives from everyone. Really what we want is to encourage everyone listening and watching at home to actually read their own Bible, mm. you know, discuss it with them, themselves, other people around them, and just let God speak to you through his word. Now we're into we're into Genesis. Genesis, exciting. We're going back <laughs> all the way to the beginning. And what chapters are we or chapter are we reading today, Lockley? Well, given it's our first episode of Genesis, like what what chapter do you think we're reading? <laughs> well, Josh? I think we're doing number one. <laughs> we're in chapter one of Genesis. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, chapter one. This first chapter of the Bible begins with a majestic description of how God created the heavens and the earth. This creation event occurs over seven days and conveys incredibly important truths about God and humanity, forming the foundation for a biblical worldview. So if you remember way back when we recorded our very first episode on the book of Matthew, I said mm. every time we start looking at a book of the Bible, there's four questions I like to ask. And so since we're here at the very beginning of a new book of the Bible, Genesis, I figured now is the time to again ask these same four questions that I ask every time I start reading a new book of the Bible. And so I'm going to ask them and let's see what discussion we can have from them. <laughs> so question number one is authorship. Mm. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Yeah, was it Moses? Why do we say Moses? 
You've both jumped in very quickly. Both is why. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot quicker than you know what we did with Matthew, um, <laughs> where we were, where we thought we were stumped on the first question. I was saying to you guys before we started recording, like I got Sunday school vibes from knowing we were doing Genesis, and I just remember hearing that as a kid that it was most. I think yeah, I've heard somewhere that the first um, couple of books in the Old Testament was written or inspired by Moses. Inspired by Moses? <laughs> written? Ideally, it's inspired by God. Sorry, inspired by <laughs> sorry, inspired by God, but written by Moses or something along those lines. Yeah. I can't remember the 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 finer details of that. In Jewish history, right up until the time of Jesus, Genesis was always thought to be written by Moses. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are known as the five books of Moses. Mm. We actually have Jesus in the Gospels referring to them as the books of Moses. However, there are some slight problems with this. For instance, we have the death of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Mm. We also have certain place names in Genesis that would not exist for another thousand years. For instance, there's a, there's a story in the book of Genesis where Abraham is wandering through the land of Dan, which is a bit of the land that is named after his great-great-great-grandson, which obviously didn't have that name yet. Mm. And so at the very, very least, there was some heavy editing of these texts after Moses. We can see that just quite obviously. Um, but it has always been the traditional understanding that it is Moses. Now, in the past hundred years or so in academic circles, that view has fallen very, very heavily out of favour. Mm. Um, there's kind of the the four document view of Genesis at the moment in most academic circles, which is that there's kind of four different sources or periods of time that went into writing the book of Genesis and it wasn't fully completed until kind of the end of the Old Testament era has been that viewpoint. Um, I guess ultimately what I want to say is that we actually don't know. Mm. Genesis is technically anonymous in the sense that it doesn't explicitly say who its author is. No. But what we do know is that the version of Genesis we have in front of us right now is the exact same version that Jesus had in front of him and he affirmed it as God's word. He mm. affirmed it as scripture. And so while this is one of those books of the Bible that we don't have guaranteed certainty over who wrote it, we do know that Jesus affirmed this as part of God's word. All right, question two, genre. What style of writing do we have in front of us here? Is it like an account? Yeah. It is quite poetic because it's got so much imagery in it, and it's quite like descriptive and like straight to the point of what is happening. So it's like... And that's because we've just read Genesis 1, right? I think when we read Genesis mm. as a whole, we see so many different types of literature in this one book. Like we've got genealogies that will go for chapters and chapters. Mm -hmm. We have battle reports. We have we have poetry. If you go read Genesis 49, like that is so poetic. We have a variety of literatures mm -hmm. even within this one book. I would say that Genesis starts a story that continues naturally without any genre shift into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which then continues into Joshua and then continues into all the other historical books of the Old Testament that I think as just a baseline starting point, I think we want to read Genesis as a historical recount. However, I want to give a slight caveat to that, which is that I think Genesis, like all biblical history, is theological history. Uh, now, Tremper Longman is probably the most respected Old Testament scholar in the world right now, and he says that theological history is when we take real events and use that as the backdrop to convey the more important theological points. 
So I think that is what is going on in Genesis is real events that is being used to convey theological points. Shall we continue with our three, our four questions our then? four questions. So we're up to question three, mm. which is the historical background. So where and when are the events of this book set? A long, long time ago. There's a few dates often given when we start looking at the book of Genesis. One of the famous dates is 4004 BC, which if you trace the genealogies in Genesis backwards, that is the date you get for creation. Mm. Now, I want to say from the outset that we should remember from our first episode of Matthew that biblical genealogies purposely skip people. They only include the most important. And so I don't think it's a fair way to trace the date of creation is just via genealogies. They they purposely skip certain generations. And we, we can see obvious evidence of that in scripture. Mm. So another date that might be important is We'll come to it in two episodes' time, but Cain and Abel, um, one of them was a farmer and one of them looked after livestock. The first evidence of those professions in the Middle East is between 8,000 to 4,000 BC. Now, I know that's a huge range. Yeah, that's a big range. But mm. let's say 8,000 BC at the absolute earliest or latest. It starts getting confusing about which word to use there. Mm. Um, but 8,000 BC is sort of when those professions at an archaeological level, popped up. Mm. Um, the only, the most solid date we have is because there's other events that start happening later in Genesis that we can date more accurately. We can actually find the birth of Abraham in kind of 2100 BC-ish, plus or minus like 50 years. It's that range. And so that's probably our most solid date in Genesis is Abraham appears on the scene around that time. Can I just ask a newbie question? Always. When we look at BC and AD, when kind of is one of them in the Old Testament, one in the New, or when does it change? The people who invented the the calendar of BC and AD, they based it around Jesus' birth. And so theoretically, Jesus was born in AD 1. There is no year zero. He's theoretically born in AD 1 would be when Jesus was born. And so the New Testament is all in mm-hmm. AD. However, most scholars agree that the people who did the early maths were wrong and Jesus was probably born in 5 BC, which is <laughs> awkward that Jesus was born five years before Christ. Um, but anyway, so basically the entire Old Testament, we're all talking BC times. Mm. We're all talking before Christ. Cool. And then whole New Testament, if the maths was right, is <laughs> would be AD, mm. which is just the Latin for in cool. the year of our Lord. And I think to, to sort of talk about that sort of like, you know, dates and everything, I think it's also okay not to have the, an- like always have the answer of when like these places, like it's, it's fun to try and work out, mm. but I think it's also acceptable to be like, well, we, we just don't know because of how ancient this history mm. is yeah. as, as well and how things just get lost over time. This but is a very ancient document. Mm. Uh, There's also the question of where is this set? Where is Genesis set for those who have read a little ahead of just Genesis 1? Egypt. Some of it is set in Egypt. That is true. Most of it is set in just the ancient Near East in general. So kind of Mesopotamia, Canaan, Egypt, all of that area. Just kind of picture that whole area on a map. Just assume most of these events take place there. And our final question is why was Genesis written? And I'll just jump in here with saying that Genesis was written to give Israel the underpinnings of why they existed as a nation. Like, why did God choose this special people, Israel, and put them in a special land, Canaan? 
Like that is what an ancient Israelite reading this book would have been asking. It's also helpful, Genesis, to understand our origins. I already talked about how how everything began, begins here. But I also think Genesis is helpful for teaching us how to behave. And it does that in two senses. It gives us examples to emulate and it gives us examples that we should never, ever emulate. Mm-hmm. And so there is a teaching element to Genesis of how do we live in this world in a way that God would be happy with. Mm. And so all of those reasons mixed in together sort of serves the purpose of Genesis. Mm. I mean, in those do's and do not sort of kick off in chapter two. Mm. Yeah. Um, especially when we get to the Garden of Eden. But we're not quite there yet. Not yet. But now that we've covered all the, the intro questions, mm. let's go to the text of Genesis 1. So as soon as we start Genesis 1, the very first three words in the beginning, Mm. they are quite famous kind of words in Christianity. Um, I feel like lots of things like in the beginning and that just starts and then it goes into things that very familiar language when, yeah, learning about Christianity Mm. and reading the Bible. As as what we sort of discussed before, it's it's giving us the basis of everything. So it's saying like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Mm. You know, it's it's clearly stating like what's God done and what it, what exists mm. for mm. us. Like you were saying before, it, it, it's then sort of now going into how He kind of did it mm. and a little bit of why. You know, first He starts with light, mm. but before we even get to light, can I suggest that? In just verse one, there's already controversy and things we should talk about. Okay. <laughs> there's two viewpoints have existed traditionally about verse one, which is that verse one is the first act, which is like in the beginning, God created everything. And then immediately after creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty in verse two. Or the other viewpoint, which I think is probably more persuasive personally, is that Verse one is the summary of the whole chapter we're about to read, mm. which is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's read about how he did that. And I think that's persuasive because at the very end of this story, uh, in chapter two, verse one, uh, chapter two, verse three, it's that he rested from his works of creating the heavens and the earth. It's saying that everything we're about to read in chapter one is his act of creating the heavens and the earth, which makes it seem that verse one is the summary of This is what's about to happen. And by the end of this chapter, this is going to be done. Mm. So I think verse one is a summary of everything that's about to happen. And we actually start with the creating of the heavens and the earth from verse two. Yeah. To me that it it reads as, it's kind of like a title of of what's about to happen. Like you said, it's like a summary. So yeah. Mm. And every other section in Genesis starts with some type of summarizing title. Mm. And so I think it would make sense that the whole book would also start that way. And so verse one is the title. This yeah. is what is about to happen. He's about to create the heavens and the earth. And then we get to verse two, the starting state was the earth was formless and empty. And he's about to say, let there be light. I also think with the first part, it also says in the beginning, God created. So it's just putting it straight out that it was mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. It's like, definitely, it's not like in the beginning, heavens and earth were created. It's like straight up. This mm-hmm. is what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's the whole point of this story is mm. to put God in that mm. central place. Then we suddenly get the spirit of God hovering over the water, which almost seems like a separate thing to God. 
and already we start getting some weird Trinity vibes, which Christians have often liked to point at and prod and start to think about. Is that the Holy Spirit? Is that what we're talking is, is that the Spirit? Literally. Like, that's the discussion being had. Mm. I don't think you get a comprehensive view of the Trinity from looking at Genesis, but I think you start to see just tiny little hints. Yeah, when I read that and then go into two, it kind of gives me the vibe of God having control over the Spirit. Like, it's weird. Weird dynamic. Well, yeah, it is the spirit of God. Mm, but yeah. like you say, it does sound a little bit separate, like Trinity vibes. Mm. And as we come to verse 28, mm. 29 later on, when God says, let us create man in our image, like there's mm. an us and an our there, which we'll come and chat about in a moment, I think. <laughs> so shall we return then mm-hmm. to day one? <laughs> day one. Day one and work our way from there. Morgan loves a good light and dark analogy. I do, and it definitely... Seems to represent day and night, quite obviously. Or, or even sort of the, the the metaphor of if we if in our views of like good and evil, or like the lightness and the darkness, the the two pole like you know the two polar opposites of each other, and having that that with one there is the other, mm. that sort of balance between the two. Now, in terms of quote unquote good and evil, that might come later. Because, and we will discuss that later, of this was the ideal world to begin with and mm. God's vision. But something to be said in terms of like the, the two polar opposites of each other. Yeah, light and dark he created. I always find it interesting that in Big Bang cosmology, light is the very first thing yes. created. And so that is worth thinking about potentially later as we come to some different views on Genesis. Mm. Um, the other thing I want to say is that, well, yes, day one is God creating light. I think it has a deeper significance than that. I think what he's actually creating on day one is time. Now, the way an ancient person would see the passing of time was in the passing of days. Day Mm. into night, day into night is the ongoing cycle of time in the viewpoint of an ancient person. And the only way you can figure out time is by having different periods And so I think literally what we see here is the creation of time. Do you think back then they had like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? (laughs) I don't think they called it that, but the Jews had a seven-day week based on this creation story. So they would be like, oh, I'll see you on day night, not Thursday. Like they wouldn't have had They would have had a name for it. Absolutely would have had a name for it. But the whole reason we today in the 21st century have a seven-day week is because of Christianity is because in Genesis we read that God created in seven days. And so we based our entire structure and society around that concept. And so day one, (laughs) God creates the ability to have a day and a night. He creates Mm. light so you can distinguish between day and night. It's interesting that it says there was evening and there was morning, which kind of reflects the Hebrew idea that the day begins with sunset. Like that is the way we talked about that in Matthew a little bit, is that Jews viewed the beginning of the day as sunset. And then their 24-hour period started from there. I forgot about that. Yeah. Mm. And then we also see the first of many times God is going to say, it was good. And so my question is, what does God mean by it is good? Well, this would sort of allude to what I was saying before, of like this is God's ideal world for us, right? He's creating this as his perfect creation. Um, And so I think... I mean, if if you create anything that's 
decent or good, wouldn't you like st- step back and go, yeah, no, I like, I like this. I like, I think in a way it's, it, it's one like, you know, affirming yourself of saying I've done a good <laughs> job. Like, but I think, I think for, for us though, today looking at it, it's, this is God's ideal world that he's creating. This is his perfect world. When you say perfect, are you associating an ethical value to that word or just a functional value? Functional in the terms of, well, if because of my belief in God, well, I believe his creation is good. Like, like it's a bit of like from a, from a, hu- from a human standpoint, yes, ethical, but from, from a higher power standpoint, if it's, it's, if it's his creation, then it must be good. If that makes sense, mm. so like a like a little bit of a little bit of both, um, if if that makes sense. But yeah, because I don't want, now I'm like, well, I don't want to say like you know he created and like nothing was wrong with the world, but yeah, like I think we often uh, we see the word good and we give it an ethical value instantly, mm. but I think in Genesis when God says and it was good and it was good and it was good, He keeps repeating it. I think what He's actually saying, rather than giving it an ethical judgment, is saying. Functionally, this is working exactly as intended. So day one, God creates time and he goes, this is functioning perfectly. Day two, he's about to create the atmosphere effectively. And he's got to say, this is functioning perfectly. And so I think as we go through, we see we're meant to get the image of God as a master craftsman. Like Mm. he's slowly shaping what was a formless blob into the perfect world that we're going to see. And that's perfection in Genesis 1 of a functional sense of our, it is going to be perfectly designed for the creatures that he wants to have a relationship with to inhabit. The only other thing I want to say about day one before we move into day through is that God creates with the power of his word. I think that is significant. I also think it has lots of New Testament significance too, if I may say. Okay. So literally yesterday, I read a Bible study on Colossians chapter one. And in Colossians chapter one, it says... Everything was created through and for Jesus. Now, there's no mention of Jesus in Genesis 1, but Colossians claims that everything was created through Jesus. Now, Mm. if you combine Colossians 1 with a little bit of John 1 that says that Jesus is the Word, you start to get a slightly different viewpoint of Genesis 1 as Christians. Like, Jews wouldn't have had this viewpoint, but as Christians, we can read Genesis 1 and go, God is creating through His Word but he's also creating through Jesus. Like that is the clear New Testament teaching is that Jesus is active in creation here. Any thoughts about day two? It's interesting like thinking that you have to separate like, you know, this this blob, you have to separate the sky and and water. But, you know, all we have to do is look outside and we, we know that our atmosphere and the land that we stand on, the water that you can swim in is all separate to each other and we have our different different spheres and sort of to think about it as well if this was sort of just a a blob that was floating through space you know god would have had to separate the the two out and with our own understanding of science because um, like you know you would automatically think oh okay well if there's water there's got to be a sky right that's just that's just how it how it how it is like no let's let's split the two like you know it's really sort of giving us a sort of a step-by-step, like, you know, almost like it's a recipe of, like, we add, you know, flour, then salt, then sugar, you know, like, he's, it, it's it's not like bypassing or missing any part. Mm. It's like, no, no, the sky is as important as the water or the land or the light. 
It's interesting that you instantly brought science into it. You're like, ah, oh, we're, we're spinning through space and we need an atmosphere to survive because we understand that. Can I suggest that the original audience of this text would not have had that worldview whatsoever? In no. fact, their mm. view of the cosmos was entirely different from ours. Mm. So when verse six here starts talking about let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water an ancient jewish person literally thought that there was some sort of hard barrier that stopped water from above getting to earth Mm. now they believed in what literally it was almost like some type of solid dome that went over the earth and stopped the water above from intermingling with the water below now, that is not at all what we picture as 21st century no. scientifically-minded individuals. But I think for them, if we don't get distracted by that detail, we can see what is actually being taught here, which is that this dome is their understanding of the weather system because mm. they look up at the sky, it rains from the sky, so there's clearly water above them because it, it falls down on them. But the weather system is so crucial to human life, especially farming life, and that's what ancient Israelites mm. were, is too little rain and you starve, too much rain, you die, mm. you get flooded out. Yeah. And so for them, God created a perfectly functioning weather system. And I think that is what is being ultimately suggested about day two here, is that God created a weather system that allowed water to fall from the sky to allow farming to happen because God has set up a perfect system for humans to live on this planet. Mm. So so saying like weather system clouds and whatnot, rather than the space and the vacuum of it, you know, the sep- instead of like the, it's a separation between sp- like our understanding of space and the planet, but it's just the weather system clouds and the land i think to read day two as god creating the atmosphere is to read our knowledge of science into the text it's Mm. not there like even just the word the hebrew word for heavens or sky that we read here that just means everything above the earth like they thought that birds flew in this space they thought the sun the moon and the stars were located in this space Mm. The Hebrew word heavens there is everything above them. Everything. For us, we know that there is a huge difference between where birds fly (laughs) and where the sun is. We know that there's dramatic difference there. But for them, that was all captured in the one word of heaven or sky. And so I think we need to not necessarily read the word atmosphere in here unless we're of the viewpoint that God is giving us advanced scientific knowledge here, but conveying it in a uh, more poetic, metaphorical way by using the vault of heaven Maybe that is a metaphorical way that God conveyed atmosphere to a people who didn't know about the atmosphere. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that is what is going on here. Can I ask during all this kind of who's around? Like, do we find out who is kind of watching this all happen or is it just God, no one's around? Well, we don't have the first human until day six. So I'm going to say that there is only God around. And at some point, he must have passed this story on to the author of Genesis. That was my next question. Like, who was witnessing all this to write it? (laughs) No one. Like, literally, it's just God witnessing this event. So the only way we could possibly know about it is via God passing it on. So he would have just gone to someone and said, I did this on day one and this on day two. We know that God had a relationship like that with many characters in the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons people think Moses. Like, if you think of, like, the holiest... Mm -hmm 
most godly character in the Old Testament. Moses is top of the list. And so only someone like Moses probably had a good enough relationship with God to have this type of conversation or knowledge passed on to him. It's really cool to like look back and think about like him creating this perfect world before putting anyone on it. Like it's just really cool. Like imagine him planning it. Like I'll chuck that there. I'll chuck that there. <laughs> it's really cool. Day three. Day three is the dry land. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how the land was already there. He just made the water flow into one place. Yeah, he so separated the, it. Yeah. Separated it. So the land was already created. It's not like it was all just water and now I'm creating like land so it's there. It's, no, no, move out of the way water so that we can have some land and sort of organizing, you know, a quote unquote, like, you know, if it's a jumbled puzzle, sort of putting all the pieces together so it all sort of works. Hmm. Yeah. And then he creates the absolutely essential cycle of vegetation again this is written to a bunch of ancient farmers and on day three they're like oh that's how we get to eat day two god created weather so we can grow crops and then day three he created crops he created the cycle of vegetation and that in and of itself is pretty amazing Mm. like can you imagine an ancient person picking up a little seed and going like a plant comes from this (laughs) and that is because on day three god created this cycle he created plant life Mm. yeah i was just going to bring up that we see let there be lights again in this next bit yeah because god created light day one and now in this kind of Mm. second triad he's now creating light bearers which is very significant yeah and it says the heavens Mm. to give light on the earth and it's so significant that god is the one who creates these because like every neighbor of israel worshipped these things the babylonians used the stars and planets for guidance they were big into astrology the egyptians worshipped the sun as a literal god mm. and yet for us or for the jewish people who first received this text the sun the moon the stars were not divine beings they were just part of god's amazing handiwork they showed god's glory because mm. he created them they themselves were not divine I do like the description of like, he made two great lights. <laughs> one was bigger than the other. <laughs> one was for the day and one was, was for, for the, the night. night. You know, it's, like, it, it's, you know, it's funny because of how simplistic it is, but it doesn't need to be any more than that. Like, you know, like we, cause we know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. You know, we don't need a, a big description of like the sun and how that, that works. Like, nah, big light in the sky. Sun. There you go. Yeah. We don't need to know that it's a giant nuclear reaction mm. happening thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers away. No, no. And and like you were saying, well, if we put our mindset into the, into the people that would have been around at the time that were trying to sort of work all this out, that would have really confused, like, fu- like you know, a fusion reaction happening within <laughs> the sun, hydrogen and all that. Like, they, they wouldn't have had any understanding of, like, even if you were to try and explain it. It's like asking, you know, like, could you explain out this modern process? Could you explain electric cars or cars in general to a cave person? Like, they're not going to get it. <laughs> Day five. We see creatures. <laughs> sea creatures. <laughs> sea creatures. Sea creatures. <laughs> the great sea creatures, the NIV actually says. Mm. So that includes, I think, something like the Leviathan oh. that we see in Psalm 104 or Job 41. Does it get mentioned? Like yeah, the Leviathan's Leviathan in scripture. Yeah, in a few places. The what? <laughs> the Leviathan. What's a Leviathan? The greatest of all sea creatures. Uh, lots of people argue about that. Um, it's just some sort of giant, terrifying sea dragon is sort of the idea. 
Um, the reason we get this idea is, and I think why it's really interesting that this is mentioned here in Genesis 1, is every other culture around Israel had different creation stories, right? So when we read Genesis 1, I think firstly we need to see it as a rebuttal or a response to other creation stories rather than anything else. Mm. And so, for instance, one of the local creation stories by the Canaanites was that their great god, Baal, fought several so fought the goddess that represented the ocean and defeated her as along with her minions which was something like the leviathan like their creation myth starts with their god conquering great sea creatures like the leviathan to prove his strength however here the great sea creatures are just once again something created by god there's no extra significance they're not semi-divine defeating them doesn't make you king of the gods like it does in the canaanite myths it's purely just that god created everything so my study Bible says that some have suggested dinosaurs, they could be extinct dinosaurs. Yeah, that mm. has been suggested, absolutely. Mm, scary. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, this is this gets into that whole thing. Well, we just don't know. Like, we, mm. we could we can speculate from our own understanding of this, of, of like where we are in history today. But at the end of the day, fish, sea life, birds, that's all it says. Yep. And like, you know, we just don't know exactly. Mm. But God created life. Mm. And that's probably the main point. Yeah. It's Here we get animal life. And it's it's impressive that he now feels the skies and the seas, which he created on day two. He now feels them with life. And then like on day three, how he separated the water from the ground, creating land or dry land. We now have animals that can be on said land. Mm. Yeah, and I think he splits the animals into the groups that, again, the the f- original receivers of this text would have split the groups into. So they have livestock, they have creatures that move along the ground, and they have wild animals. And that's a pretty normal distinction if you're a farmer. You have the animals that you actually look after, you have those non-dangerous animals that just sort of crawl around all over the place, and then you have the wild animals that you need to protect your livestock from. Mm. And the biggest wild animal of all, humans. Well, (laughs) not the biggest, (laughs) but potentially the climax. Mm. Humanity, as we finally reach us, we appear on day six. Now, I did say we would come back to it, but here God says, let us create human in our image. Mm, Us. What does that mean? Who who is us? Yep, that that is my question. The Trinity. Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> him and the animals us like he's <laughs> yeah like you know he's in the field with the, with the like you know flocks of animals and whatnot now and, and so it's more like a, the royal we like the royal us let, let let us all create like he's actually doing the work he's wanting to be inclusive <laughs> <laughs> jewish scholars have often held that before the creation of the physical world that we read in genesis 1 god had already created the heavenly world and the spiritual world. Mm. And so God is standing amongst his angels and saying, let us create humans now as the grand climax. However, I would argue that humans are not made in the image of angels. So it feels weird to weird for God to say that. I think I would agree with most Christian scholars who say that while the Old Testament is very fierce about God being one, about God being a monotheistic God, this is one of the hints we see that there is a greater revelation to come in the New Testament about something else going on about God's very being. So he is one, and the Bible is absolutely clear about that in the Old Testament, but 
we start to see hints that the New Testament will more fully reveal that while God is one, he is shown in three people. Mm. I'm such a visual person. I just want to know, like, did he just, did the person just wander out the water? Did they fall from the sky? Did they just like pop and like, or was there sparkles? Like, I just want to know how it happened. (laughs) Well, if you wait for next episode in Genesis 2, we will see God creating Adam and he does it in a very certain way. And so let's delay your question. Just one episode. No. (laughs) (laughs) The suspense. So then what a lowercase g God, like, because is there the just, I don't know if I'm getting it right, but there's the, because we always do the capital G God, Mm -hmm. but is there lowercase g God? The Bible will often use lowercase g God when referring to other pagan deities. Uh, So the Old Testament's method rather than denying the existence of their pagan neighbor's gods, mm. just screams the power, the overwhelming authority of their one true God. Mm. And so that's the way the Bible mostly addresses it. Yep. It doesn't deny the existence of someone like Baal, mm. but it does say, but he is not a he's not the God. There is only one God who created all, who has all power, all knowledge, all authority. There's only one being that exists like that. Mm. And that is God, but he is superior over your little G God. Yeah. Yeah. And God gives a bunch of uh, instructions to his new creations. He tells them to rule over creation. He tells them to be fruitful. And he gives us every seed bearing plant for fruit, for food, which I'm sure the farmers were very happy to read about. Do we know what the first person was called or who it was? This will depend immensely on your viewpoint as we come to next episode. Mm. But Adam and Eve are historically the first human couple. The first humans created is the traditional view. But I suspect we could have a very fun conversation about that next episode. (laughs) Sorry to delay you again, Morgan. I'm not going to sleep for a week. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting at the end of day six, he, he, instead of saying it was good, he then says it was very good. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's almost like now that everything is in place, it mm. is now, this is now really good. Absolutely. The whole, while every individual piece I've created along the way was good and perfectly structured and working perfectly, now that the whole is here and in front of me, it's amazing. Mm. How long was that person on their own? Like, they would have been quite lonely just kind of walking around navigating what they're seeing. Like, were they, how long was it until the next person? It's interesting because here in Genesis 1, we don't get a singular human created. We get mankind created. Mm. Now, it's not till Genesis 2 that we see that there might have been a slower order than just all mankind created at once. But here in Genesis 1, it's just he created mankind. So a whole society, a whole community, potentially. So we see it say, so God created man in his own image. What is the image of God? Fantastic question. Josh, thoughts? <laughs> no, you gotta throw it straight to me. <laughs> throw it straight away. Well, my understanding is like, well, we're, we're, if we're made in the image of God, we're made in his likeness. Like, Great, you're using synonyms. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I know, I know. I'm not, actually, I'm not actually answering the question. I could be an excellent politician. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, there was one, th- like, you know, I remember as a kid thinking, well, if, if we put, like, you know, if, if, like the image of God, well, if we, get, if we gathered every single human being on earth, we put it, we, we mush them all together, oh. that's what, like, like if we, like, somehow 
overlaid everyone's like face if that like you know and we we were able to like get like everyone's like as a reference point and sort of generate one image based off everyone on earth that's what god would look like that's what i sort of would like like, so you got a real physical image here (laughs) yes and that's you know as like being younger that's that's what that's what i um thought sort of in my adult years like now thinking about it well to me it sounds more metaphorical than it's like literally we are one-to-one of of god if that makes sense so it's like possibly like well seeing how like god rules over all of us we are commanded to be rulers over this earth so so we're sort of like there's that parallel image of, Mm. of the two that's a lot better than your childhood answer. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a physical <laughs> face if we mushed them all together. This is an ongoing debate amongst Christian theologians about what the image of God is. Start off with three essential things that we all agree on, and then I'll present three different views. So firstly, we all agree that every single human is made in the image of God, regardless of gender or race or status. Every human is made in the image of God. And mm-hmm. I want us to take a moment to actually actually appreciate that fact. Mm. Like the history of humanity is a history of degrading others, pretending they're not human so that you can conquer them or enslave them or do mm. whatever the heck you want to mm. them. And the Bible opens with the very first mention of humanity by giving all of us inherent value. Like that is, that is earth shaking. That is groundbreaking. Mm. I don't think we appreciate enough what that means for a worldview. Mm. Anyway, firstly, every human. Yeah, we're all equal. Yeah. Second, sin has impacted this image in some way, negatively impacted this image some way. And third, Jesus Christ was slash is the true image of God. So those are three things about the image of God that are non-negotiables we all agree on before we then need to unpack and understand exactly what it means. Any questions about those three before I present potentially three different views? Well, do we, do we actually all agree on it? Like, Yeah, that's probably a good place know. to start. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan's just nodding very, uh, I don't want to say aggressively because it's not aggressive. Like, yes. Like very much agrees. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. One of the most common ways of understanding the image of God is structurally. That is that there is some kind of capacity we have that gives us the image of God. Now, that has often been said, rational thought, moral agency, self-determinism, the ability to view ourselves as an I. Often people say that it's some sort of structural capacity we have. Mm. I think that view cannot be true. And I think it cannot be true because you can always find examples of animals that have some element of that, or you could find humans that don't have it. So a baby doesn't yet have the ability for rational thought or moral agency. Certain mentally disabled people do not have those abilities. And yet as Christians, we affirm wholeheartedly that they are made in the image of God. So I don't think it has, I don't think it can be a structural thing. The second view is the functional view, which is that the image of God is actually a role that has been given to us. So if we look at text immediately after saying that we are created in God's own image, it says in verse 28, that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every every living creature that moves on the ground. I think, and I, I and many others think that immediately upon saying, let's make mankind in our image, God then defines what that means in that next verse. The image of God is a role that we've been given. As God rules over the universe, he appoints us 
as representatives of him, as images of him, to rule over the earth. I think this mm. works well in the ancient context because other cultures often referred to their kings and their priests as in the image of God, and that was that they were God's representatives. You had to listen to them because they represented Ra or they represented whoever. However, God is saying every human represents him mm. and has the role to rule over creation. The kind of third option is kind of comes mostly from the fact that immediately upon saying mankind's created in his image, he says he made them male and female. And so this is sort of the relational option, which is that humans have some type of inherent necessity of having relationships. And that is essential for the way we go about life. That represents God in the way that he is a trinity. It is also a relational being. Um, there's something about being in relationship and the fact that we were made as a male and female that comes together to give us an image of God and necessitates having relationships. Now, I've kind of already played all my cards and <laughs> suggested that I think it is that, that second one. It is that role that we've been given, but I'm happy to stop talking now and hear opinions and thoughts from others. Yeah, I agree. What do you think, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> well, agree with which one because he gave three differing... Um, the second one. The second one of uh, the ruling. Mm, yeah. I would I would also agree that the image is also what God dictates of how we should sort of act of, of as his as he is sovereign uh, the sovereignty of, of God and ruling over all of creation, we are also ruling over what he has given given us. What's interesting like, you know, I agree with that, but what's interesting is it's like it's in the image of God. God is the original mm. and the image is a representation of that. It's not yep. we are God no, or we are gods in any sort of capacity or, or form. The If you take an image of anything, it is not the original thing. You have made a like a copy of it, but it's not the original. So I think it's also interesting to um, and sort of a point to make of we are representing God in it, but we are not God. God is still Definitely God. Not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we all sort of think it's more probably that second second one that you said. You know where it says, like, be fruitful and multiply and fill? Does that mean just, like, go make babies? Because obviously that takes nine months and they'd have to be married first. Like, how do they know that? <laughs> like, well, how do they know they have to be married first? Like, do they have time for that and then to wait nine months to produce people? Firstly, I'd point out that the first time God says be fruitful and multiply, it's to the fish and the birds. And so what God is saying here is that he's setting up a system of growing and expanding and continuing these species. So yes, God eventually says that to humanity, but you also have to remember you're reading just the first chapter in a much longer work. So we go into chapter two and we read about the seventh day that God finished his work. I want to know, is this why church is on a Sunday, which I think we previously have spoken about. We have. Is this a Saturday or a Sunday? Well, that is the exact question. So this Sabbath here is a mm. Saturday. Mm. Day one was the Sunday in our terms. Our church services didn't move to Sundays until Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And we went, oh, that's pretty significant. <laughs> Let's celebrate that um. day more. But this Sabbath here is, according to the Jews, a Saturday, and I think that is very accurate. And so mm. we set aside a day of the week to celebrate and remember God who rested after his huge creating work. Yeah, he deserved that rest day. He would have been very busy. <laughs> yeah, I know, just creating everything. Like, <laughs> I, I would be knackered too. <laughs> what I think we have to remember is I think day seven is actually set up as the climax to this story. A lot of people like to think humanity is the climax, but I think the fact that 
God bases his entire creative work around seven days. He could have done it in literally any time frame he wanted, but he's communicated here in scripture that it was across seven days to set up our weekly rhythms. And I think that's why it's the climax. God rested on this seventh day, I think in a in the sense that he stopped his active work of creating because he has it. God doesn't need a rest, mm. um, but he rested in the sense of now setting a pattern for us of work for six days, have one day off. And that is the system that the Jews used for thousands of years to great effect. Mm. Does he keep creating after day seven, like anything, or does it just kind of stop? That is a fantastic question. If you're a deist, you would believe that there is a creator God who created and then just yeeted out of there. Just was like, <laughs> oh, cool, I'm done and I'm out. <laughs> but as Christians, we don't actually believe that. We believe in a God that has always continued to be active in creation. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. again, to relate it back to Colossians that I just read a Bible study for yesterday, it says in Colossians that God sustains creation even now. Mm -hmm. And so part of the Christian worldview is not just that God created and sat back. It is that he is active in every moment, sustaining it. If he was to stop actively thinking, I want creation to exist, it would cease to exist. God is also a sustainer of all creation. Mm -hmm. And then we see him intervening within creation multiple, multiple times. Mm. Like every miraculous moment is only miraculous because we can see it as a normal pattern and God then chooses to break the pattern. Mm. I mean, you just... You could, I mean, you could pick any real story, but like mm. the first one for me comes to just Moses, like any sort of inter- like God intervening with with Moses. Mm. Um, you know, God, God, God's there. God's either create like creating the plagues or um, creating a fiery tornado. Which we'll, we'll get to that wild, the wildness of of, of all that later. Of Exodus, much <laughs> of Exodus later. And um, but you know, like even even to what like creating Jesus. And and then well, let's be careful. Well, how we phrase okay, that. you know, like, yeah, okay, yes, <laughs> <laughs> his human body, his human, his human body, and 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 God being Jesus, but you know, through through the miracles and everything, God is in and Jesus is is working, like you said, he's not just just stopped. But I think it's also him resting is like a humbling thing. I have. A quote here in my notes, and I can't remember where I found it from. So maybe at the end of the episode, I'll give some of the sources I've used to create this notes document. So I give someone some credit. But it says that um, God's rest is a rest of achievement, not of inactivity, for he still sustains and nurtures what he created. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it, is this Sabbath day rest is a moment of achievement. It's going, look, I've created the perfect world for humanity to inhabit because I want a relationship with them. It's not a rest of now I'm done, I won't do anything else. It's not even a rest of I'm now inactive. Mm. It's actually just a rest of achievement. Mm. And we would do that. We would do the same. We would we would stop and look over at what we've what we've achieved too. Mm. We wouldn't just completely move on to the on to the next thing. Yeah. So you you mentioned there perfect world. Mm. And so maybe we should sort of just quickly touch on because we we've talked about it before but We've now come to the end, and especially of of Genesis one, and sort of briefly into into Genesis two, and when we get into Genesis two, we will get into sort of how that perfect world doesn't necessarily stay perfect, mm-hmm. but this is God's ideal world, right? Yeah, he, well, he's, yeah, he's created, he's created it. This is this is what he wants. This is it is functionally working perfectly. Mm. In his words, it is good. Is very good by the end. The whole thing. 
is very good. And so this is all before sin. Yes. Mm. I don't want to go too much into the next one, but just sort of just preluding <laughs> it, preluding it off. This is all before sin. This is our ad for our next episode, yeah. which is you want to know about sin? Come it's, back next it's, week. It's the next one. I'm so excited for next episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I keep deferring all your questions to talk about I know. later. <laughs> it's good. But I think now that we've got to the end of this text, I think we need to start putting it together. I think we need to figure out how this all works because there are many, many views on Genesis 1. And uh, I think we need to figure out what some of those might be. As a newbie, straight away, I question science versus Christianity. Yeah, 100%. Interesting. So are you questioning the the two as two separate things? Like... I was actually telling Alyssa about this, that recently I went to a National History Museum and I was standing looking at the timeline of dinosaurs and in my head I was thinking, like, I was so confused with timelines. Like, part of me was like, did God create the dinosaurs? Like, I was just so confused with the whole how everything worked because in my head I was like, dinosaurs had to live on Earth with trees and land and water separated. Like, so I think it's all just very confusing. And Mm. then obviously the Big Bang that you learn about at school or, yeah, I don't know, I was just... I'm still confused about it. Yeah. I still don't really think I have a set answer. But um, if God created everything, who created the dinosaurs? Oh, I mean, God. Yeah. They're part of everything. But they were before that. so Well, that's probably a bigger question then, isn't it? Is It's a matter mm. of timing. I think every Christian, yeah. regardless of if you're Genesis 1, would affirm that God created everything. So therefore, it comes down to a matter of timing. Mm. So to mm. sort of touch on when you, what you're saying about about science and and religion and this is purely my own opinion I'm not forcing it on anyone else but my my thought process is science and religion don't act aren't actually against each other they work in tandem one explains one version of it the other is tries to ex- explain it in just a different 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 way the, those two sort of work together if we look look at the what we um big bang theory it's an explosion and or an expansion of of matter that started the universe. Well, what happens when there's an explosion or, or energy that starts from a singularity and expands ex- extremely quickly? Or well, light gets created. And what do we see here? We will we see light being created. So for me, the two aren't against each other. One explain one is just a way to explain the other in just a different form. The f- common Christian way of phrasing that is that we have the book of scripture and the book of nature mm. and we read both together to get a full picture of the universe. Yeah. Is the common way that viewpoint is expressed. Mm. And that's, and that's, and that's, you know, what I sort of, I, I believe, I don't think, I don't think uh, like the science today disproves any of this because I've just, if we look at the big bang theory, for example, I can find, I can see the big bang in here. So based on what you just said, I'm getting very much in a viewpoint that is commonly called old earth creationism. But I think before we discuss that, we should probably talk about young earth creationism. Mm -hmm. So there are many viewpoints on Genesis 1. Probably the most famous is the young earth view, which is based on the very straightforward idea that Genesis 1 is a step-by-step historical account of creation of the world, where each day represents a normal 24-hour period. Now, a really famous proponent of this was Ken Ham. Um, so if you want more information, I guess, look him up. Um, a less famous believer of this was me as a child. Now, <laughs> that's not... Like, let me clarify so I don't annoy a whole bunch of our listeners. Um, I'm not saying that this is a childish viewpoint. I'm just saying that, as a fact, I believed this as a child. 
Mm. Just so we're very clear from the outset. So, yeah, a lot of Christians. It's particularly popular in America, I would say, based on the numbers I've seen, is Mm. that Genesis 1, literal, step by step. So everything else, like dinosaurs or other timelines or Big Bang, um, you need to figure out how it fits into Genesis 1 as a literal seven-day week. But ultimately, you just believe Genesis 1 and everything else must be false or must be interpreted differently. Now, there's a really easy way to make everything fit, and that is called mature creationism, which is just that God created the universe with the appearance of great age. So when God created stars, even though they're billions of light years away, he created the light in motion so that it's already hitting the earth. When God created trees, if you had cut down a tree on day three, you would have found growth rings in it, even though Mm. it was a few hours old. And so because you can theoretically believe in this mature creationism idea, God could create everything in any order he wanted to with whatever appearance of age he wanted to. So you don't actually need science and Genesis 1 to agree on the age of things Mm. because God can create anything looking like any age. Mm. You know, they say it's this age. It's like, well, yes, it is that age because I made it that age. Yes. Yeah, I made the tree a hundred years old, even though it is one day old. Mm. But as God, he can do that. Yeah. Like there's absolutely fair and true. Like that is a popular interpretation of Genesis 1. Now, holders of this viewpoint will often argue that it is also the traditional viewpoint. Um, in response to that, I'd like to point out that John Dixon says that from the earliest centuries, many of the great Jewish scholars, so Philo, Maimonides, And also some of the earliest Christian scholars, Clement, Ambrose, and Augustine, taught that the six days of creation were a literary device, not literal events. And so while this is popular in certain segments of Christianity, and while they will claim it's the traditional viewpoint, history doesn't actually show that. Now now that we understand young (laughs) earth creationism, we can move on to the view that I think Josh expressed before, (laughs) which is old earth creationism. Some famous... People who believe this is Hugh Ross. So look up Hugh Ross if you want more information. Um, another less famous person is Lachlan as a teenager. <laughs> Lachlan as a te- I like how you keep referring to yourself as less famous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am a lot <laughs> less famous. So old earth creationism is the idea that each day in Genesis 1 was not a 24-hour period, but instead represents a much longer period of time. And when you actually start thinking about it in that way, I will say that it lines up almost perfectly. And so let me read a quote from Edwin Beaven to prove this point. Supposing we could be transported backwards in time to different moments in the past of our planet, we should see it in its first condition where there was no land distinguishable from the water and only a dim light coming from the sun through thick volumes of clouds. Sounds a lot like day one. At a later moment, as the globe dried, land would have appeared. Sounds like day two. Again, at a later moment, low forms of life, animal and vegetable, would have begun. Day three. Sooner or later in the process, the clouds would have become so thin and broken that a creature standing on the earth would have seen above him for the first time the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day four. At still a later moment, we would see the earth with its great primeval monsters. Day five. (laughs) And lastly, we should see the earth with its present fauna and flora and the final product of animal evolution, man. Sounds a lot like day six. Mm. So when you stop and take each day of Genesis and turn it into 
a very long period of time and then you make your viewpoint from the surface of the earth, the days and the signs line up remarkably well. Mm. Mm. Josh, is that is that a fair way of explaining what you currently think? Yes. Hundred percent. That's that's what that's that's what I think. Um, there's a good way, of, yeah, good way of, of summarizing my my thoughts on that. So you you said that that was what um, your teenage self yes. thought. What about you know the not so famous <laughs> present day, the present day, day of Lockland? So I think I currently subscribe to what is known as the literary view of Genesis one. Now, some famous people for this is John Collins, not the singer. John Lennox, and then a less famous person, Lachlan John, as an adult. Yes, my middle name is John, so I totally fit in with the John to believe this. <laughs> this viewpoint is that this creation story was never written as a historical account, but instead is the most beautiful piece of literature, incredibly poetic, and the primary purpose of it is to convey theological messages about God, which shaped and began the Jewish worldview. Mm. And I think as you read through Genesis 1, if you are not struck by the beauty of the poetry, if you're not struck by how much thought has clearly gone into this passage of structuring it and thinking deeply about every single word placement, like in the Hebrew, every word is placed in an incredibly beautiful, majestic way. Mm. I think this is the most beautiful piece of literature I've ever read. And I think it is not conveying history. It is like it is like a parable. It is like a poem. It is conveying essential, true, absolutely fundamentally true things about God and creation, fundamentally true things about ourselves. The things we can learn in this passage about humanity is just essential to any Christian or Jewish worldview. Mm. And I think that is the purpose of Genesis 1 personally. Mm. And I think based on genre alone, there's many notable Hebrew scholars I could quote right now who would say that Genesis 1 is clearly of the genre of poetry. And there is a shift as we come to Genesis 2. The genre clearly shifts. It stops being as poetic. It stops being as structured. Still beautifully written because Genesis is beautifully written. But the genre changes beginning from Genesis 2 Mm. into a far more historical narrative type structure. Mm. That's my current argument about Genesis 1 and my current viewpoint Mm. about Genesis 1. After you just sort of explained explained that I sit in the sort of the the mixture of its 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 poetry and literature of the people at the time mm. and their current understanding of needing to be able to explain how it works and how it's happened, but it just so happens to on a scientific level line up very so, nicely, very yeah. nicely. So so it's sort of like it's I have this understanding of probably more it sits with more of a literature sense, but it's nice that science also can confirm confirm it and sort of back back it back it up. Before I say my next point, Morgan, after we sort of discuss that, your your thoughts? Yeah, where are you sitting after those three? Yeah, I'm at a point where I just don't want to overthink it. Like I just don't. That's fair. I don't want to question too much. I'm not really sure. That's okay. And I think what you've what you've just touched on is probably the main takeaway of you know like our brothers and sisters in christ no matter what your your viewpoint Mm. let's not overthink it let's not just get stuck on the squabble of needing to work out exactly what this is where it sits what what our understanding of is like well that's not the point the point is of knowing that our god is the god of creation Mm. 
and is our mm-hmm. and that is that is the point that he is our our sovereignty and the person that we we look up to that has created all of this. Yeah, and I agree. I think yeah. Christians get hung up fighting about Genesis one when ultimately we we believe in Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we totally believe in, and we can disagree about Genesis one but also has some good, robust discussions about Genesis Mm. 1. Can I just run through a list Mm. of the key theological truths that I think Genesis 1 teaches? Because I think no matter what viewpoint you hold, Genesis 1 teaches us these things about God, and it is incredible. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Mm -hmm. God exists. Like That is (laughs) groundbreaking. Like, like, let's be real. That is actually groundbreaking. There is one God. God Mm -hmm. is creator. God is distinct from creation. Mm. So goodbye paganism. God is personal. If that's not foundational to Christianity, I don't know what else is. God creates with his word. God blesses. The created order is good. God Mm. had a goal in creation. The Sabbath is important. And mankind was created in God's image. Mm. Like these ideas are revolutionary for the original receivers of this text. Mm. Like if you are Mm. an ancient Jewish person and all you've ever heard is your Babylonian, Egyptian or Canaanite friends talk about their creation stories, like this, these 11 points I just listed out are groundbreaking. Mm. And we get to read Genesis 1 in the 21st century and also affirm that this is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of all we believe, the origin of our faith, which is what Genesis means, is these truths. Mm. And that's where we mm-hmm. all start from. That's what we all agree on. 100%. And I love what you said, like, Morgan, let's not overthink it. Let's, <laughs> let's you know, mm. let, like, we, we, we believe on these truths. Let's not overthink it. God's given this book, this word, you know, for us. Let's not overthink it. And let's continue, like, you know, let's continue on in his word. Final thoughts, takeaway thoughts. Yeah, I just have been left with more questions than I thought I'd have for next episode. <laughs> Not a bad It's kind of like when we were left on a cliffhanger last time before the death and resurrection. Mm. <laughs> yep. I just have, yeah, I've never really questioned it that much before reading this again with you guys. Mm. So I'm excited for next time. Yeah, it's left me to kind of want to go and research a bit and maybe look into other people's views just out of interest about what they think after hearing what you said, Lockie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to remember, this is chapter one of the whole Bible. And so <laughs> you're sort of meant to be left with a bunch of questions because we have yeah. all the rest of Genesis, but also the rest of the Bible to answer what else is going on that has been brought up yeah. in the first chapter. And I feel like it also would have been quite different reading this without of without reading Matthew first for some reason. I don't know why. I'm just excited. It's good. Leaving leaving you hungry for more. And I think that's like, you know, like, you know, I think we might all feel a bit like that, but I, you know, I want to just get, get into, get into more, more of it. We're just like, mm-hmm. we only just got the, like the creation part. We haven't even gotten to the garden of Eden, Adam, <laughs> Adam Eve, or any, any of that. Like, mm-hmm. it's just the very, very, very be- beginning. But like, you know, my takeaway is it's just that the awe and wonder of, of God and in his mm-hmm. creation. I, um, and just, you know, just the either the order of things of of how he did it, or just he 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 made you know everything that was that was good, everything that was that we need to sustain ourselves for life, not only just humans to to grow and flourish. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Mm. Mm. I feel like my takeaways are the exact same as yours, mm. like both of you, which is that 
I'm so excited to continue the rest of Genesis. This is the book of origins. This is the book where we get the foundation for all we believe and think. And I'm so excited to move forward. And then when it comes to the specific text of Genesis 1, like just the fact that God created a universe for us so he could have relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Like the purpose of creation was so he could have a relationship with us as humanity. Yeah. And that is such an incredible way to start thinking about God and his character. I'd also kind of love to hear from new Christians and people as well what their like initial big questions were. Mm. As someone who asked a lot of questions, I'd love to hear like initial thoughts like straight out before reading this or learning about it while we're at the beginning. Yeah. And then see kind of how they evolve their thoughts by the time we finish Genesis. Mm. Oh, great. And, you know, like Morgan said, send in your questions, your thoughts that you've gotten from Genesis 1. would love to, to hear, you know, if you're reading this for the first time, what those thoughts are, or if this is your, however many times you've read read Genesis, what, what your thoughts are now, what your thoughts are then. would love to hear, hear from, from you. And don't forget to keep up with all our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Also, this podcast can be listened to on any podcast platform that you listen to podcasts i've recently updated so it's on more platforms and also if you just listen to it we're also on youtube so you can see our lovely faces or if you're on youtube you just get to get to listen to us if that's your preferred way of of consuming this content we're also on patreon so if you want to support us uh financially then head on to our link tree all the links there to patreon uh, will be there and you'll get sort of extra content and we'll be putting it up there. So if you're interested in uh, financially supporting us in that that way, you will get some extra stuff up there. Head over to Patreon to get more details. Lockie, why don't you uh, end, end with a bit of prayer? Absolutely. Lord Jesus, thank you that you created everything. Thank you that before anything existed, you desired a relationship with us. And so you created this beautiful world that we inhabit and then you came to earth to initiate that relationship with us and to save us. And so thank you that we get the chance to study your word. Thank you for the insights we get about you and our relationship with you from it. And I pray you'd continue giving us insights and revealing your truth to us in the coming season. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everyone at home, thank you for listening and joining with us. Lockie and Morgan, thank you. And we'll be seeing everyone next week for Chapter 2. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production. Bye.